Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back about seven years. March the 13th, 2013. This was originally episode 1088. Our guest was Patrick Barron, who had been uh, priorly a candidate for the United States Congress, and it was called Defining the Machine. And Defining the Machine is a website he still has working. I have a link to it in today's uh, show notes, though it appears since it's so old and he probably is not actively maintaining it. was kind of an informational site. It was set up and it works. Some of the features on it don't work. Uh, mainly, I think, because some things like Flash and stuff are kind of going out as a technology. So it's not really that, there's, that the site doesn't function. It's that some of the things on the site, like one of the videos, may not work for you. But it's still there, and it's still very informational. This video, or this, uh, this interview actually tells you all you need to know, though. And I want to talk a little bit about why I chose today's episode to leave you with while I'm away this weekend. And it is because we are heading into Ask Clown Circus 2020. And um, the hysteria around COVID will fade by midsummer. And we will be in, as they always say, the most important election of our lifetimes. Again. And it will be interesting to see how it all plays out. Um, I'll give you a little prediction right now on the, the primaries because I like doing predictions and seeing if they come true and going on record with it so I can prove they did, or at least I'm on record with the fact they didn't. So my prediction right now is not much of a prediction. It's 50-50, Biden-Sanders. Uh, now, most people would say right now, man, it's like 90% Biden. No, it's not, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because there's still both over a 1,000 delegates short of the number of delegates necessary to become the nominee And something very important is going to happen if you pay attention to this as far as the presidential election. That's really not what we're talking about today, but that's what I'm talking about for now. And that is that before the next major primaries, Biden and Sanders will debate. And if Biden was the Biden of four years ago and everything was where it is now, I would say it's about 99% that you're going to have Joe Biden as the nominee. The fact that everybody fell out of the race and coalesced behind Biden is good for Biden early on, but it's a risk. It's a risk for the Biden, not for me or you, the Biden camp, right? And the risk is that now you are going to have a debate with Bernie Sanders, who is what Bernie Sanders is, but one thing Bernie Sanders is not is unable to articulate his position clearly. You, you, you can't say that Bernie Sanders can't clearly explain his position. He may not be able to clearly explain exactly where the money comes from, and he may talk around it, but when does a politician not talk around where money comes from? When it comes down to being able to say, this is what I want to do, this is how I want to do it, and this is why I want to do it, Sanders can do that, and he is clear as day in his ability to do that. Joe Biden, which one are you going to get? My guess is that, and I don't say this to be mean, that they will pump him through of whatever kind of special medicine that rich people can get that poor people can't, um, rich and connected people, as to try to prop him up the way that you take an athlete who has an injury and you, you pump them up with painkillers and injections into their knee so they can get through a game. And they will try to get him through the debates. If Joe goes into... Whatever it is, because I don't want to say the guy has Alzheimer's or dementia. I'm not sure that's what it is, but there's some level of cognitive impairment there. If that is really evident, now, partially evident, I don't think it's enough to derail him. But if it becomes bad, and I'd say flip a coin, heads it doesn't, tails it does, if it becomes really bad, that you could start a terminal decline of the Biden campaign, and you could end up with Bernie Sanders as your nominee. Then you got Bernie versus Orange Man, or you got you know Biden versus Orange Man. But what today's episode is about is where a lot of the real power is in this country, and that's in Congress. 100% of spending originates in the U.S. House of Representatives. 100% of it. It is actually unconstitutional for spending to originate anywhere other than the House. 
That means the house has a lot of power over what does happen, and it also means the house has an, obs an absolute lot of power over what doesn't happen. When the Congress says they want to stop the president from doing something, and it's, you know, the, the majority in charge says that, and then they don't, they didn't really want to stop them. They didn't really want to stop what, what was happening from happening because they have the power of the checkbook. They can basically defund anything. Seriously, they can defund anything. They have the constitutional power to defund anything. It's a really nice excuse to blame the other side or blame, you know, whatever. But it is the case, and you know, I am an anarchist, and I, I, I try to explain this as best I can. I am an anarchist on moral principle because I believe that it absolutely is always wrong to take something from somebody else against their will that they rightfully acquired. And I believe it's wrong to impose the will of the state or the will of anyone on anybody else through force because I believe all interactions should be voluntary. And I believe the only place for any sort of intervention is once that, that individual right is being violated. And if there is to be a state, a minarchist state, that's the role of the state. That's what it should do. I also accept, you know, I'm the pragmatic anarchist. I realize that that ain't the world we live in, that there's going to be a government. And I often try to put myself in the role of, if I were to try to fix government, how would I do it? Apply that troubleshooting mentality. And I'm telling you that the way things work right now, our federal government cannot be fixed. One reason is not even related to what we're talking about today. It is the massive size of the bureaucracy. There's probably 50% of people in our government right now that are your bureaucrats um, that are not necessary, yet they wield incredible power. We don't need them yet, so they really don't fix anything, but they can screw it up. But if we just move back to the actual pol political level of government, the politicians, and we go into Congress, your Congress doesn't work for you. Your congressman can be as, as pure as the driven snow, The day that he or she shows up to their first, you know, real day of, of doing their job. And if they want to get anything done, they are going to play ball with something you're going to hear about today. If you didn't hear about this, you know, back in 2013 when we originally did it, just a, just a little over again seven years ago. It's called the party dues system. And I'm not going to tell you too much about it because you're about to hear about it completely from Patrick Barron and And in my interview with him, and I'll tell you that at the time that I did this interview, as informed as I am, I had no idea that it, this is exactly how it worked. I didn't know any of this. I knew that I knew that they were bought and paid for, but I didn't know to the level or exactly how. I thought it was all just straight up campaign contributions. I didn't know that there was actually an organized system for selling out, and an organized system that requires you to sell out. That if you want to sponsor a bill, you have to sell out further. If you want to co-sponsor a bill, you have to sell out further. If you want to do anything other than show up and vote yay or nay on measures, you have to sell out. In fact, there's a price list for selling out. There's like, you want a committee chair, this is how much it costs. You want to co-sponsor this bill, this is how much it costs. You want to be appointed onto this committee, this is how much it costs. I'm, I'm dead serious. I'm not making this up. And As much as I dislike her politics, because anybody that wants bigger government, I don't like, which means I pretty much hate them all. But like the more government you want, the more I hate you. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is being done dirty by this right now. They're looking at how to get rid of her. And they're not looking at how to get rid of her because she's an idiot. But she's an idiot. I, I, I'm not defending her being an idiot here. But her, and it's not Republicans that want to get rid of her. It's Democrats that will re, re, uh, control redistricting here. At least they expect to. And they want to redistrict her out. Basically just eliminate her district. That way they don't have to primary. They don't have to send up somebody in a primary to get rid of her. Just her district goes away. It gets combined with another district and she's out. They want to get rid of her. The chief reason is she has refused to play by the party due system. And when this came out, Earlier this year, I think actually the end of last year, that this could happen. Um, a lot of people on the right, and even in libertarian anarchist circles, were like, ah, <laughs> get rid of that moron. And well, I certainly won't lay down, you know, flowers in in mourning if AOC goes the way of the dodo bird. 
uh, as, as a politician. Um, I, I don't think it's funny. I don't think it's funny that this system is so entrenched that if anybody in our Congress tries to buck the system, their own party will get rid of them through whatever backhanded, dirty, underhanded means necessary. And I'll give you the basics before we go into this old interview, but it simply works out that you have to pay your your, your party, the DNC uh, or the RNC, a certain amount of dues. But you don't pay, unless you're like super freaking filthy rich, right? You, you're, you're not going to be able to pay it on a, on a congressional salary. You're not going to write a personal check for this. But the base dues are $250,000 a year, quarter million dollars a year. You show up, you're a new congressman, you're in debt for a quarter million dollars. Where do you get it? Fundraising. Fundraising. Now, the interesting thing is, AOC is, think whatever you want about her, she can raise the hell out of some money. But she still doesn't want to play by the party due system. And they want to get rid of her because of it. So the party due system is absolutely integrated into our Congress. And it is basically a requirement that your congressman, right? and I know senators are technically congressmen as well, I'm talking about representatives, um, but that your congressman from your district be on the hook to somebody or they can't play the game. We're not going to change things as long as that's the case. It is carte blanche for industry to control our Congress and our checkbook and where and how they spend money. And this is why the average law, most laws, over 90% of laws, are not written by legislators who are supposed to write them. They're not written by legislators even in the concept of they have a staff or they have lawyers on retention. They say, this is what I want to do. Write me a law that does this thing and I'll go over it or whatever. I, they are written by industry and lobbyists. And they are handed to congressmen and they are bought and paid for through the party due system. There is no way around that. And when you hear this, if you've never heard it before, this interview back from 2013, it, it, it will forever alter the way you look at it whenever anybody tells you you're going to make a difference by changing the government. You can make some changes through government, but you can't make change through government. You can make short-term changes, but the long-term trajectory remains the same. And this is not why. This is one of the big reasons why. I wish I had better news for you. This is the way that things are. Let's go ahead and rewind back. March 13th, 2013, Patrick Barron and Defining the Machine. With that, hey, Patrick, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I have to tell you, actually, this is something that, like, never happens. I have people being booked into June right now. Generally, I don't try to work people in. But when I met you in New Hampshire, um, you tied together what I've been telling people for so long, and they just don't listen in such a way. I felt this was really important. So as soon as we had like a guest fall through, I got Dorothy to bring you in. So I appreciate you, you know, adapting to kind of a, a floating schedule and being here with us today. No, oh, no problem. Again, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Well, one of the things you told me is that the federal Congress, and I'm sure some of this stuff goes on at state levels and all, but when we look, and I've said that the federal House and Senate is a freaking joke. I call it a clown house, and I call the people there ass clowns. Right. And, and I've said that, like, you can vote for the D or you can vote for the R. You're not really going to change anything for so long. But you, what you told me is it's basically a proven play, uh, pay-to-play pay system. Right. Why is that? Well, again, one, it is proven. Uh, what it is is basically um, when a new member gets to Congress, he's assigned what they call member or party dues. So just getting to Congress puts you in debt to your party. So hypothetically, I'm a freshman Republican. I just got elected in. Party leadership's going to pull me aside fairly quickly and explain to me how Congress works, which is basically the more I give money and the more I support their ideology to the party leadership, the farther I can go in my career and the more they'll help me in return. So the party dues, when you first get there, are approximately $100,000. So immediately you're charged money that you have to pay your party. Um, then what the party does is they tell you where to go get the money, which is to use the RNC or DNC right across the street from their offices to do their fundraising. 
And within the RNC and DNC are the uh, call centers, which are really nothing more than telemarketing centers. And you go there, you see the secretary, they'll give you a list of who to call and how much you should make from each person. And you basically go fundraise and you turn that money back into the party. And by doing that, that kind of puts you in good graces with leadership. Um, the reason is pay to play. People say, OK, well, sometimes there's party dues. That's OK. Um, but it's pay to play in the sense that, you know, you're clearly told how much you owe, where you have to go to get it, what the reward is if you do get it and what the punishment is if you don't get it. So, I mean, it's absolutely uh, a pay to play system. And again, this is all, this is all documented. Um, you know, on my website, I have links to many articles, but it, it's out there, but it, it's just really not linked together. So people have a very similar reaction to what you have, which is, you know, something's broken, you know, it's not working. Both parties seem to be dysfunctional. And this does kind of connect the dots. Well, what I've always said is that all of these guys are in hock to somebody, and the people that are spent, uh, giving them the money are the ones that are really in control. I go back to an old philosopher from mid-century England that said that, that when one hand gives money to the other, the one giving the money is always in control because that's the hand that's always higher. Right. What you did was explain to me the mechanism that kind of ties it all together. And what you just said is like a mouthful. So let's walk through this kind of one step at a time so people can really take it in because basically you've just explained the whole thing, but a lot of people, their mind is going, no, this can't, <laughs> it, I, no, right? It's yeah. like when you explain monetary creation the first time. You can do it in five seconds, but people, it takes a while to get it. Right. So let's go through this. So you say, right. member gets to Congress, he's immediately in debt to his party. Right. And how much? About a hundred grand, right? A hundred grand. There's varying reports, but yeah, about a hundred grand, give or take. So then his party says, you know, you need to come up with this hundred grand. Now, very few of our congressmen, especially freshman congressmen, whip out the checkbook and write a check for a hundred grand. So they have to get this money from somewhere. Right. So where does the money come from? Well, that's that's where the party leadership will help them raise the money. They'll tell them, uh, go across the street to the call center, see the secretary. She'll give you a list. They actually have lists provided. They have who you should call when they donated last um, and how much they would like you to get from that person. So they actually have lists assigned of how much you should try to get from who. By doing that, obviously, they're going to send you to, you know, the Republicans are going to send you to the more extreme right-wing groups, and the Democrats are going to send you to the more left-wing uh, liberal groups because it's easier to fundraise from the extreme sides of the spectrum versus the middle. So you're going to be told to go across the street and make some phone calls and raise money from the extreme side of the ideology. By doing that, you're now in debt to the money, people that gave you the money, which I agree with what you're saying, that basically whoever gives the money is in control, and, uh, and then you're also in debt to the leadership. Well, so let's really put this in perspective for people, because I like to cut through things and get down to, like, the, the true brass tacks. What you've just told me is we all get together, we support this grassroots uh, freshman congressman, we get him elected, we send him off to do the work for the people, and basically the first job he gets is no different than walking down to a local telemarketing center and getting a job doing fundraising for the local police department, except it's being done at a much higher level. But he's basically doing a $9 an hour telemarketer job for his party when we've sent him to D.C. to do work for his people. That's what you're telling me. Yes, exactly, exactly. And not only are they doing it, but it's the amount of time that they're doing it. You know, it's hard to get an exact number, but what I've been able to find is basically they spend 30 to 70% of their time fundraising. So it's amazing that we send them down there to do work for us, and they'll do midnight votes, and everything comes down to a crisis at the end of the uh, budget year or whatever the case may be. Um, but they're spending 30 to 70% of their time fundraising, whether it be at the call center or meeting with lobbyists or hosting dinner with lobbyists. Um, but yeah, they're, they're fundraising all the time. And yet they all complain about the amount of money in Washington. So you, you mentioned you know Republican a few times. So is this is an e evil Republican plot for big business, and then the Democrats are angels, and they're not doing this too, or is this both parties? No, this is absolutely both parties. This is a, this is a totally bipartisan is issue. It is uh, both parties function the exact same way, which is also make, you know, again, one of those dots that gets connected is they function the same way because they're doing the same thing, which is why people are fed up with Congress and they say they're all the same. Um, the process to how it functions is all the same, and that process is broken, so... We're getting the same results. You know, we like, to, you know, we go down grassroots level. We like somebody, we get them in. We think they're going to do well. Uh, immediately, they're told how the game is played, and now they're in debt to the party and no longer in debt to their constituents. Now, if you want to get the donkey to move, you put the carrot in front of them, and you dangle it, and it looks really good and juicy, and he starts heading toward the carrot. So I imagine this isn't just um, a pain 
situation, there's actually a reward. So if you do good and you raise your money, you get something. And if you get, you become more successful and more clout and can call more people and get more money, maybe you get a little more. So what do these guys get out of this other than just they're, they have a seat at the table, so to speak? There's actually a like an echelon of control within the body of Congress, right? Right, right. There is you know, there's party leadership. Um, you move up the ladder. Basically, when you get to Congress, leadership is going to support you in what you wanted to do. Again, this is done in a very friendly, big brother kind of way that, hey, we like what you campaigned on. We can help you with whatever the legislation is that you are working on. Um, but in order to do that, you got to get in the game. And if you get in the game, we can help you. We can help you get your bill into committee. We can get you on to committees. Um, it's a publicly stated fact and well-documented. Again, on my website, it's there. that They actually charge certain fees to get on certain committees, or minimum entrance fees anyways. You can always raise more. But, uh, but they charge a minimum fee to get on certain committees. So basically, they reward you by getting on committees, which helps you move legislation um, and helps you fundraise more, more money. So – then, I mean, there might actually almost be a price list, right? So if I want to be a, a seat on a minor committee, it might cost me X. And if I wanted to be a seat on a major influential committee, it might cost me Y. And if I wanted to be actually chair a committee, then I would actually have to come up with even more money. Right. And there is, actually is a price list. Um, and it's on my web. <laughs> I know. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Um, but yeah, it's actually on my website. There's a link to the 2011 price list for the Democrats. And basically it starts about $100,000 if you want to be a lower ranking member on a lower committee, up to you know, literally millions of dollars if you want to be high ranking on a high committee. Uh, so there, there actually is a price list and it's actually published. So. Now, do some of these guys, because they've been, you know, some of these guys have been in office for 20 years. Uh, mm -hmm. A big case for term limits there uh, in of itself, um, except that I always feel like if you actually wanted term limits, that's the people's freaking job. But um, so would you say that maybe some of these guys, when they want control and they've built up these huge war chests over time, basically donate money to their own party from their own war chest so that they can basically buy their seats just straight out, right? Right. Yeah, that, that's what they do. They, they buy their seats, which buys influence, which helps them with legislation. They can also buy things like sponsorship on bills. So if there's a bill coming through that I want to get my name on because it's going to help my district, I can approach leadership. I can get money for leadership. Leadership will then make me a sponsor on the bill, even though I had nothing to do with the bill. But then I can go campaign on it. So that's one of the reasons that you, you know, they can perpetually be elected. Is there? Well, hold, 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 hold on. We got to talk about this. So sure. a lot of times I'll see a, a bill that looks like a really popular bill that people are going to want. Right. And even though it's not going to pass, it's something that like the certain wing of one party or the other. I hate to even use Democrat or Republican because it's the same system either way. Right. And then I'll see like a list of like 30 co-sponsors. Yep. Now, I always looked at that as like, okay, these people are trying to help get this bill through. Are you telling me that they buy that listing so that they can campaign on it? I believe so. I, you know, I can't prove that one 100%, but yeah, absolutely. I believe so. There's too many cases where people become sponsors out of the blue. Um, they're not a sponsor. Uh, they don't even support the bill. And next thing you know, they're sponsored on a refined version of the bill. So why does that happen? That doesn't happen by accident. Ah, great. So we know what they get. What do they like? Because this is you can't actually make someone do this. I mean, if I ran for Congress and I won and nobody asked because I'm not freaking doing it. And I went up there and what Boehner or one of his boys came up to me and said, hey, you know, this is how it's going to work, Jack. And I said, go screw. Yep. They can't send me out of the building. They can't they can't say you're not a congressman anymore, not a senator anymore. They, 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 I, I'm still there. Mm -hmm. So how do they punish me for not playing the game? Well, basically, by barring you from the game. I mean, you, you, know, you really have to think about the process. What I focus on, which is a bipartisan issue, is it's the process of how this all works that creates the gridlock and the issues that we have. So the process is if you get in the game, they help you. If you don't get in the game, they don't help you. So across the street from the congressional offices is the RNC and DNC. That's, that's the nerve center to being reelected. That's your marketing. It's your opposition research. It's your fundraising. They have a restaurant in there to hold fundraisers. Um, that's where you can meet with lobbyists legally um, versus in your office where it's a little more difficult. So you need to be able to use the RNC and DNC to get reelected. Otherwise, you're a perpetual first-term candidate running again. So in order to, to use those facilities, you have to be in the game. So much so that in 2006, uh, Rahm Emanuel went to all of the Democrats in Congress, said it was going to be a close election. They needed more money. So he wanted $50,000 from each of them within three weeks and said, basically, if you don't get me the 50 grand, you can't get into the DNC. If you don't get in the DNC, you're not getting reelected. 
So, so you're absolutely threatened <laughs> if you don't play the game. And you basically end up being a one-term congressman. I mean, just recently, Justin Amash and a couple other, other senators, uh, congressmen that really haven't followed leadership's lead, uh, recently just got thrown off a bunch of committees. So that might be the beginning of the end for those people. We'll see. Is this why the, the occasional rogue that runs as, let's say, an independent and wins mm-hmm. always ends up choosing a side to caucus with? Right. Yeah. Yeah, you have to. Bernie Sanders springs to mind. Joe Lieberman, when his own party threw him under the bus, ran as an independent, got his seat back. Right. But then both of them turned right around and caucus with the Democrats. Yeah, well, I mean, a couple of things. One, no no person who hasn't been in gets in as an independent. Typically, it's somebody that was a Democrat or was a Republican, and they become an independent just to avoid a primary loss, <laughs> typically. So it's not even that they really were independent. They were avoiding uh, losing in the primaries, typically. So once they get back in, they go back to the same old tricks. I mean, an independent's not going to be able to get anything done. You don't get anything done, you don't get real. Yeah. So the concept of a candidate telling their constituents that they're going to be an independent voice when they get to Washington essentially is a myth. And I would say even if that person, when they're saying, because they've never, a new congressman's never been there, a lot of these guys have no idea this is what they're walking into, but there's no way they can actually do that. Right. Well, that's exactly it. That's the issue. And that's how I came across this. I was actually an independent candidate for Congress in 2010 in Massachusetts, and and that's where I started researching and finding out about this. But, yeah, the, the, the concern that I had is that nobody knows. The candidates, the challengers don't know. They're not even aware of this as an issue. So you're right. They go in. They're sincere when they're campaigning, saying they'll be independent. They want to do all these things. And then they get there and immediately are really educated about how it works. And they can't be independent to their constituents. So it's not even that they're lying when they're running, but by the time they get there, the rules change. The second time around, they know. Second time, second time, they're not quite so honest because they know how the game works. So, I mean, the question that came up when I put this out on the blog is, well, what about a person like Ron Paul? Mm-hmm. How does that work? Because, I mean, this guy's been a – I mean, he's done what he said he would do, at least tried to, and he did that for over 30 years. Right, right. Well, the Is it just because if you have enough kind of you can – okay, here's your money, now leave me alone – yeah, no, Ron Paul is actually kind of a unique situation in the sense that he didn't play the game. He really didn't pay money to the party. He really tried not to do this. Um, so he was kind of out there in a maverick on his own for a long time. But at the same time, he didn't do a lot other than raise issues and raise awareness. He didn't get a lot done. So he was kind of unique in the sense that he didn't play the game or was able to get reelected repeatedly. Um, but he was trying to get on the Financial Services Committee for years. And when he did get on the committee finally a couple of years ago, he uh, he did make a check out to the Republican National Committee for $300,000. So he ended up paying to get into that position. Now, I don't think that he sold himself out. He's obviously shown his dedication over the years. But my guess is leadership says to him, look, you know, we're charging everybody for these kinds of positions. And, you know, we have a lot of impressionable freshmen behind you. And we can't give you positions unless you show them that you play the game. And uh, and ultimately, he wrote the check. So Well, and I mean, he had raised enough money. I would think that, you know, even most of the people that donated to the Ron Paul uh, candidacy would say, if that gets this guy on the committee, then, you know, fine. Um, but he wasn't over in a freaking telemarketing center begging for money either for for the party. Right. He, he you know he didn't approach it the same way. He had been raising money over the years, and he does a lot of grassroots fundraising, which is good. Again, I don't think he sold himself out by doing it, but uh, because he was aware of the process, because he didn't do it for years and years and years and years. There was actually I have an article. I don't believe this on my website where they ask him about it, and he just basically said, "I don't even know what you're talking about with party dues. I don't pay any dues." And he's sincere. He's sincere, but yeah. But that's, that's I think that, you know you're also looking at a guy that, like you said, and I said this in 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 kind of a defense when it was asked about it when I published an article about the work you're doing. Mm-hmm. That this is exactly the case. He did a lot to raise awareness, but if you actually say, "What is the track record?" of Ron Paul's success in getting things done in Congress that would not have happened without him. It's very, very small. Right. It was all about awareness. And it's been huge for the liberty movement. Right. But I think it's also reinforced the myth that somebody can get – because it looks like he got a lot done. Right. But show me the bills that were introduced by Ron Paul that were counter to the, 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 his own party right. in any way, shape, or form that got passed. Right. Right. And there's not a lot of them. No, no, there's not. There's not. And that's not by accident. Again, you can only get so far unless you're playing the game. 
And Ron Paul wasn't playing the game, so he wasn't able to pass the things that he wanted to get done. He was great for the Liberty movement, and he really brought a lot of awareness out. But, you know, they're not going to work with you if you don't work with them. It, it, it's a pay-to-play system, and if you, don't, if you don't do it, you're not getting anywhere. And they make that very clear. They make it very clear. And that's the problem with the gridlock. You know, the two people I get asked most about when I present this is typically Ron Paul, which we just talked about, and Alan West. Um, I always focus on the Republicans. And the reason I focus on the Republicans is because – Fiscally, I tend to agree with them a lot more. I believe in smaller government, a lot smaller, and I'd like to see it limited in, you know, financially dramatically. So, uh, but one of the people that's really risen over, you know, very quickly was Alan West. And so everybody always says, what about Alan West? Because he talks a great game. But, you know, I have articles where Alan West actually collected dues for the party. But again, that's how you get stature is you help the party, they help you. The reason you know about Alan West is when they call John Boehner for an interview and he declines it, he'll say, well, why don't you go talk to Alan West? And he gets them the FaceTime. And in return, Alan West becomes a collector for the party. So, you know, the reason you hear about some of these guys isn't because they're actually as good as they say they are. It's because they're playing the game and they're getting put out there. I, I kind of feel the same way, and some people are going to be really upset with this, maybe to a lesser degree, but the same way about Rand. Um, that's the other one I, I heard about a bunch. What about Rand Paul? What about Rand Paul? And I think Rand is his father's son, and he's he's a pretty good son of the father, but he's not the father. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I haven't followed Rand Paul as much. There's, there's an issue with that. One, the Senate is slightly different from Congress because leadership doesn't hold the same power over senators as it does with Congress. The process is the same. It's just done a little differently. Uh, the magnitude of it is done a little bit differently. Um, so, it, so it's a little different to begin with. I actually haven't followed Rand Paul in terms of any donations and things like that. Um, I have to say personally, I like the guy, um, but uh, – but I haven't really followed what he's doing on that level. Well, I think part of why it's mitigated somewhat in the Senate is there's only 100, right? So there's a difference there, right? Because you're you're literally 1% of any vote as a single senator. Right. And 1% right. significant. When you look at, at, at the House, right. one vote in the House isn't jackedly crap. There's almost there's almost never a vote close enough for three or four people to make a difference in the House. It happens, but it's rare. Right. Three or four people in the Senate can swing a lot of things one way or the other. Right. Well, exactly. Right. Exactly. You want a lot more influence. It's all about leadership. There's more competition for committees. There's more competition to get your bills passed, et cetera. You know, in order to get on a committee, not only do you pay the money, but it's decided by the Republican Steering Committee, which is actually only 26 people. Um, so 26 people decide who gets on these committees. Out of the 26 people, two people hold seven votes. Again, this is democracy in action. The Republicans are always talking. <laughs> I know. They always talk about, how, oh, geez, we believe in democracy. Well, the reality is to get on a committee seat, you need 13 out of 26 votes. Yet the Speaker of the House and the Majority Leader uh, have seven out of those votes. So, you know, it's all about pleasing leadership. And when this really started back in uh, – uh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, it started with Newt Gingrich, actually, back in 1986. Uh, well, yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, is, is, is this not this was this course of business for 100 years, or is this new? Yeah, no, it, you know, it's been course of business for a long time in the sense that, you know, politicians always gave money to politicians a little bit, but they didn't give as much money back to their party. But back in 1996, what happened when the Republicans uh, took over Congress, and I give, you know, I give credit to uh, Newt Gingrich and his management style, what had happened prior to be a committee chair – is you did it through seniority. So over time, you became a committee chair. So you'd be on the same committee 10, 15, 20 years, and you'd be on that committee with people from the opposite party for 10, 15, 20 years. So you'd learn to negotiate, you'd develop relationships among other committees. It was a very decentralized power source. So the committees themselves were very independently powerful. When uh, the Republicans came in in 96, Newt Gingrich changed that. Uh, there was a big outcry for term limits for Congress in general, which I don't think will ever happen. But instead, what they did is a term-limited committee assignments. So now you could only be on a committee for three terms or six years. You could only be a committee chair. So the way to do that, you know, that's when the really buying and selling of committee assignments became prevalent, so much so that in 96, um, you know, it's documented that in order to be on the Financial Services Committee, you, you actually had to sign away your vote that you would never vote against party leadership to be on that committee. So when, they're, you know, when that person is running for office, he's telling you that he's going to represent you and be independent to his district, et cetera. And the reality is, is they signed away their vote to get on the Financial Services Committee. So it really started taking off in uh, 96. You really see a dramatic shift. Um, do you think this is a big part of, you know, we hear the term gridlock all the time and, you know, the do nothing Congress, et cetera. Has this exasperated gridlock, the inability to actually 
find a compromise that works for the people, and, and both sides give a little, and both sides get a little. Because what you see now is they, every, both sides are saying, we want a compromise. Right. And, and, and both sides' version of a compromise is, you don't get jack diddly crap, and we get 100% of what we want. What's wrong with you? Why won't you compromise? Right. Yeah, no, this is exactly the reason for gridlock. This is, that's kind of why I called it defining the machine, and it explains gridlock. You know, two things you always hear. You hear about gridlock, and it, are things worse today than in the past, which I would say absolutely they are, and you can prove that. Um, and, and why is it there? But nobody explains why. Everybody says it's there, but nobody says why. And this, this system, uh, my theory explains why gridlock is there. That basically, when you're fundraising by the extreme or left or right parties, you're in debt to the extreme left or right. And that's the way the votes come down. So you can never meet in the middle. You know, 86% of the people are not satisfied with Congress. So my question becomes, I'm always asking why. Why are 14% happy? But it's the 7% on the extreme sides, left or right, that are happy. It's the middle ground that's not represented because every time Republicans and Democrats start to come together, they're moving forward. They're sincere. They want to do something. I'm not saying these are bad, evil people. They're just stuck in a bad system. So they want to do something. They start moving forward. They start looking towards agreement. But if it's going to affect their donors, then their donors start calling and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't do that for X, Y, and Z reason. Or I gave you a million bucks last year. You can't do that. And it collapses. And it collapses. So the system is designed for polarization. Do they have other things that are related to this that the general public doesn't know about, other ways that deals are cut and made or anything like that? Well, just in terms of the history a little bit, again, you know, it changed a lot in 96, and then it changed a lot in 2002 with the Bipartisan Congressional Reform Act. Uh, basically, what the parties, one of the things they did with that was the parties banned soft money from coming directly to the parties. They were, hope, they were tr telling the public they were going to make the process more transparent and not take money directly. But what they did in the same bill is they made it so congressional members could, one, they doubled the amount that they're allowed to fundraise. And two, they made it so they could give unlimited amounts back to the party. So all they did is in 2002, instead of shutting off money from coming directly to the party, they made the congressional members conduits for the money. So they've actually created a system that's created more gridlock. So back in 96, to get on committees, you had to start buying seats. In 2002, now that congressional members are the conduit for the money, they are forced to go out and do all the fundraising for the party. So really, it's, it's a system that's just geared for polarization because everybody's in debt to leadership or, or the donors. I mean, the thing I say to people at this point is we might as well have two congressmen. You might as well have Boehner and Pelosi because everybody else has to follow their lead. You know, we're overpaying, you know, 533 of these guys. <laughs> so, huh, this opens up a completely different dynamic. So let's say that I was uh, fairly well-off uh, lobbyist with quite a bit of influence and had a bunch of money I wanted to uh, put into the hands of the Democratic Committee, and you – you were, you know, a member of the top-ranking member of the committee, and I said I want to make this donation, but based on this new finance, I, I can't do it anymore. You could maybe say, hey, you know what, uh, Joe's been doing a real good job for us. Go give him the money. Exactly. Yep, they can do that. They can donate it to the to the members, and the members can turn around and give it back to the party. So, you know, if, but not only that, the, the leadership at the DNC could tell the lobbyist which member to give it to because he was a good boy. I mean, oh, yeah. this is almost starting to sound like the freaking Godfather here. Oh, yeah, no, it is. You know, I'm going to do you a favor, you're going to do me a favor, and then we're both going to get a favor, and then we're going to all be good. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly the dynamic you're describing. It is. Well, it's a pay-to-play system, which is the godfather. So, you know, you know, it makes sense that they would work that way. You know, in 2010, when all the Republicans swept into office, one of the things, you know, I have articles that, you know, discuss basically when they came into office, so many freshmen came in that they couldn't indoctrinate them fast enough. So the heads, the, you know, committee chairs were taking out the entire committee to meet all the lobbyists at the same time so they could do these massive rounds of introductions to get them connected. You know, the candidates will have you believe that the lobbyists are always calling them. The reality is, is the candidates are calling the lobbyists equally or more than the lobbyists are calling them. Because the hand below is in service to the hand above when the money's handed over. Yeah. So if I give you a pie every day for a year and I don't show up with a pie today, you'll probably come to my house and ask me where your pie is. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so do you even have a video Yeah. on your website, freaking John Boehner yep. uh, admitting yep. that he handed out checks from tobacco companies to the members of Congress on the floor immediately preceding a vote regarding big tobacco. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that happened back. Kind of explain that. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's not the most thing. I just said it. You should get it. But, you know, people are going to go, what? You can't do 
Yeah, I know. Well, again, this stuff is so inherently wrong. I mean, in a congressional code of ethics, it says never do anything that you know creates the appearance of a conflict of interest. Nothing about this fundraising does anything other than show a conflict of interest, yet they all do it. So, yeah, back in 96, there was an expose done that basically John Boehner was giving out checks um, from tobacco companies to other members on the floor of Congress right before the vote for big tobacco. Uh, the video is on my website. It's uh, definingthemachine.com. And uh, he, he admits that he did it. And even during the interview, when he admits that he did it, he says, geez, you know, it's a practice that's gone on a long time, and we really should put a stop to it. But, you know, but he just did it the day before. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so he's like, yeah, this is garbage. This is I watched the video. It's incredible. Yeah. This is garbage. This is crap. Yeah. You know, and, and it shouldn't be done. In fact, what I'm going to do for everybody, I'm going to I'm going to play that little video right now, and we'll be right back, and we'll uh, we'll, right. we'll kind of wrap up from here. Please, folks, do what's right. Don't do what the tobacco industry wants. They As a newcomer, Smith assumed that in a budget-cutting Congress, this would be an easy fight. But she underestimated the tobacco lobby, which descended on Congress as the vote neared. There are tobacco lobbyists everywhere and at all the receptions in the buildings around the Capitol. They'll say, I was your friend in the last election. So they use that terminology for giving you money. And they'll say, you know, are you going to be our friend on this bill? That's how you're approached. Because they can't, they change the terminology because they can't say, I gave you money, you vote for me. As a battle raged over the tobacco subsidy, the reach of the tobacco lobby extended right onto the floor of the House, a forbidden domain to all but members and their staffs. Freshmen like Steve Largent were shocked at what happened there. Well, I had heard that uh, that there was one particular member that was passing out checks on the House floor. And uh, I immediately went to that member and confronted them and, and uh, asked if it was true. And they confirmed that it was true. And, uh, you know, just... Who was it? Well, I'm not going to reveal who it is. The member, it turned out, was the fourth-ranking Republican leader in the House... John Boehner of Ohio. Like Tom DeLay, Boehner has become known as a Republican leadership point man with powerful business lobbies. Klein asked me to, to give out a half a dozen checks quickly before we got to the end of the month, and I complied. And I did it on the House floor, which I regret should not have done. It's not a violation of the House rules, uh, but it's a practice that's gone on here for a long time that we're trying to stop. and. And I know that I'll never do it again. Were the checks from tobacco companies? Uh, I think, if my memory was served me correctly, I think it was a tobacco check, yes. How do you feel about that episode, looking back on it? It's a bad practice. we got to stop this. This is just not something that will happen. But in this case, tobacco's well-timed contributions helped save its subsidy. So the people that were passing out the checks won. All right, well, that, that was pretty incredible, man. Um, but you had some other things you wanted to talk about. There was there was something you were you were on right there when we took that break. Yeah, well, just in relation to the whole thing about John Banner giving out checks on the floor, you know, he gets confronted on it, and then they decide, okay, we should really ban that because now that it's public, we look pretty bad. So we're going to ban the fact that we're giving out checks on the floor of the Congress. So they did. They, you can't give out checks on the floor of the Congress. And politicians will tell you when you see them in their offices, they can't take checks, they can't be bought, et cetera, et cetera. But right in the Congressional Code of Ethics, there is an exception made that says that members can take money from other members in their offices. So they banned it on the floor of the Congress, but if I'm a congressman sitting in my office and you come down the hallway to talk to me about some highway bill, uh, you can sit in my office and I can say, geez, didn't you hold a fundraiser last night? And you can say, yeah, actually I did and I got a check for you. Here it is. Let's talk about the highway funded. And that's completely legal. They exempted themselves about fundraising from each other in each other's offices. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And then, you know, that brings in the whole thing with the fundraising and now the conduit is taking place and now the member can distribute to other members because I think we hear – three terms all the time and how bad they are, but no one really understands them. So maybe you can explain what they are and the role they fill in. So we hear PACs, LPACs, okay. Super PACs. What is all that mumbo-jumbo, you know, an acronym crap, and what does it actually mean and how are they used? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that. Um, well, basically, 
every candidate has what they call a PAC, a political action committee. Um, it's either, you know, they call it a PCC, a primary campaign committee. Everybody's got one of those. So that's basically if I ran for Congress, you've got the Baron for Congress, you know, PAC or political uh, campaign committee, primary campaign committee. That's where I take my money in. And that's what I used to get myself elected. What happened in 2002 is when they changed and made me the conduit for money. When I fundraise into my primary pack, I'm turning around and giving away roughly 30% of that money back to the party. So the problem is, is prior to this, I used to use some of my primary campaign money to give to other members because they're buying money, you know, they're buying influence from each other as well. So when the party started demanding more money from me from my primary account, the issue became, well, then how do I pay off the other members? And that's where they came up with the leadership pack idea. The leadership packs, they're, they're really nothing more than a second. Hold, hold on, hold on. Before we go there, hold on. So until they did this, basically what you're saying is that if I was supporting Patrick Barron for Congress, and maybe you wouldn't have done this, but if you were a typical candidate, and I say, I, I believe in Patrick, and I'm going to write him a check for $200 and send it to him, and I think that I'm giving you that $200 to further your campaign with, Really, I've given you about 140 bucks and 60 bucks to the RNC or the DNC. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Third. Great. Okay. Continue. I'm sorry. I just want to make because this is kind of shit that people hear and they're like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Just no. want to be clear. So now go ahead with the LPAC. Yes. 30 to 70 percent of what they bring in, they're giving giving away. So yeah. So what happened with the LPAC is basically if we're giving all my money, um, if my money from my primary campaign accounts going in two directions, it's going back to party leadership to play the game, and it's going towards getting me reelected. So how do I pay off the other members, and how do I pay off the state committees that'll help me get reelected, et cetera? So uh, leadership packs took off. They've been around since nine, you know, before '96. There's only 42 in uh, 1996. There's over 373 of them now, and a leadership pack is really just a second bank account. So it gives me the ability to fundraise twice from the same donors. So I can go to Verizon and have them put into one account that I'm going to take 30 to 70 percent of and give to the party, and I can go back to Verizon and have them put in a different account that I'm going to give 30 to 70 percent to another member. So it really is just a second bank account. You know, leadership packs should just straight out be illegal, but it's really just a fun. It's just a, another bank account, so they can hit the same donors twice. So you put a limit on me, but you say, but that's per per unit, and you're allowed to have two, so the limit's actually doubled. Yeah, yeah, the, the limit's doubled. Ah, nice. Then we get into a super pack. Yeah. Based on what I've heard so far, this doesn't sound good. Well, go ahead. What's a super pack? Well, super packs in some way, well, one, they're separate. So I don't focus heavily on the super PAC. Super PACs are the businesses, are the companies, are the nonprofits that are forming collections um, or collectives that raise a ton of money and then either sponsor advertising themselves or they selectively donate to members um, themselves. The issue with super PACs is the money's not as trackable, so people are really worried about it. They bring in huge amounts of money, but it's not something that Congress directly controls um, themselves, which is why I don't focus on it. My big thing is small and limited government, and I think you need to regulate them before you regulate anybody else. The concept of leadership PACs, they could stop. They could just choose not to do it. They don't need any legislation. They could just decide that this is inherently wrong. Um, so I focus more on the, you know, on the PACs and leadership PACs and not the super PACs. Um, the, you know, the members of Congress will always talk about super PACs, but when was the last time they told you what a leadership PAC was? Because they always point the finger outside of Congress. They never want you looking inside of Congress. My, my whole thing is about looking at Congress. You know, the problem isn't the citizens of the United States. The problem is Congress. And, the, and they're not bad people. I don't demonize anybody. But it's a system that's completely broken and the process is corrupted. So, well, you talk about regulations for them, well, but they're the ones that pass the regulations. So yeah. it really is the fox minding the hen house. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, just like in 2002, you know, they say they banned the soft money from coming to the parties, but then they have a different conduit to get the money. So they knew how they were going to get the money that they told you they were going to stop to begin with. They were never planning on stopping. They just had a different conduit, which is always the case, which is always the case. So well, we, not only did they know how they were going to do it, they did it in a way that actually strengthened the very system they said that they were putting restrictions on. Yeah. They made the system more powerful, not less powerful. Yeah. The supposed regulation. Right, exactly. Yeah, they made the parties much stronger and their influence greater. Yeah, no, they, they strengthened the gridlock, they, they strengthened the, the uh, partisanship by doing it. And they knew where they were going to. So it's, it's, it's like not just a chicken uh, house being minded by the flox, but the flox is like passing a regulation requiring all the chickens to uh, 
have you uh, to, to have the chickens have their wings clipped. Right. Yep. That, that's what it is. That's what it is. You know, when you talk to candidates, you know, my big thing is try to get people to talk to candidates because, again, the freshman candidates don't even know this is an issue. And my goal is to educate them that this is an issue. So hopefully they stop. They're walking into a trap that they don't even know they're walking into. You know, they could stop doing it very easily if they were aware of it. The problem is they're not aware of it. By the time they get there, it's too late. So I'm using this approach to try to get people like yourself and your listeners to educate their candidates that do you realize you're going to be charged party dues and are you going to play that game? Um, put them on the spot. Most of them have never heard of it. They'll talk about campaign finance reform, which really is a joke. That's not necessary. You know, again, 30 to 70 percent of what they're raising, they're giving away. They could cut down the money in politics by 50 percent if they just stop giving away their money. <laughs> so, so they need to regulate themselves. That's the issue. So, but they're not going to do that. Well, I mean, so what's the solution here? I mean, we've talked about campaign finance reform, term limits. Some people say, well, let's do all public funding in a campaign. So everybody gets the same amount of money. It all comes out of the same bowl. And there is no money. There is no, but that kind of gets into the whole thing. Like, if I want to support a candidate, shouldn't I be able to? There's free right. speech. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is them. The solution is them. The solution is your candidates. And the solution is the public being aware of this issue and making them stop. You know, publicly financed campaigns is not the way to go. Um, you know, this, again, they could cut down the money in Washington by 50% tomorrow. All they have to do is stop buying influence from each other. That's all they have to do. So half of the money would go away tomorrow if they would agree, geez, being charged party dues is a bad thing or giving, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars to other members of Congress is a bad thing. If they would just be aware of that and stop that, half the money in Washington goes away. They always talk about the problem, but they don't talk about why the problem is. And if they don't know why, the solution is always wrong. So they're always offering up these failing solutions because they're not identifying what the problem is. I'm trying to identify what the problem is, and it's really them and the system that they've trapped themselves into. So what do you think we can do? I mean, other than I mean, to me, the only thing we can do is really shine a light on this thing. And yep. it seems like that's what you're trying to do and make as many people aware of it as possible. So when they do their little town hall meetings and shit, I'd like to see people standing up and going, hey, uh, if we're donating money to you today. How much of that money are you going to turn around and give to the, uh, exactly. the committee? Um, what is this about handing check? Have you ever been, uh, Mr. Congressman, in your office and either received or given a check to another member of Congress? I mean, is it is that really the approach we need right. to take? I think it is, and that's why, I, I, in a way, I like this issue because you don't have to target everybody. You have to target the new candidates, and ideally, you know, this is such an issue that is so apparently right or wrong. You know, again, the Congressional Code of Ethics says don't do anything that creates the appearance of impropriety. This clearly does. Everybody <laughs> I talk to about this the issue. Appearance. This creates the environment of impropriety. There is Absolutely. there is no way you can do this and not get into a place where special interests are served and 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 people are I mean this is there's no way this system works without it Exactly, exactly, which is why – that's why you know, I think shining a light on it will make a big difference. This is really a case of right or wrong. You know, I've never presented this issue to one single person that's disagreed with it, but I have presented it to several candidates, and none of them really want to talk about it. They're already committed to not ruffling the feathers of you know, their future leadership, whatever the case may be. The only people that haven't just stood up and said, oh, my God, this is terrible, are candidates that I've tried to educate – not one member of the public that I've ever talked to has disagreed with it. So really, I think it's pretty, it'll be pretty quick and easy for the public to make this culturally unacceptable. This is blatantly wrong, and we need to point it out. If people start asking their candidates on candidates night, hey, would you do this? Do you realize this occurs? Uh, it will become a lot harder for them to do it. Well, I mean, are you finding that there's a receptive environment? I mean, you talk to me. I'm alternative media. I don't give a damn. I'm beholden to nobody. First open slot, dude, you're on. What about <laughs> mainstream media? I mean, clearly, like, okay, this is what pisses me off. You're telling me things that I freaking know Glenn Beck must know. I know Rush Limbaugh must know. I know the people that do articles over at the Huffington Post. I know the people on NPR. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. The big media outlets have to know this crap is going on. I've never heard a freaking peep about it because both of them are so worried about protecting their horse, they don't give a damn about the racetrack. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I'm not sure who knows what. You know, I know, you know Rush constantly talks about the money laundering system, which I totally agree with. Um, 
But sometimes it's just a matter of connecting the dots, kind of where you started the interview, that basically everybody knows there's something wrong. We know the pieces that are wrong. We know the money. We know all the stuff. But nobody's really connected the dots. And what I've done is I've tried to connect those dots. So I'm not sure why it's not out there more. At the same time, you know, my presentation has only been out there for about a year at this point. I ran for Congress in 2010. I started learning about the issue. I was able to confront my opponent um, in debates about the issue, but I didn't know it well enough to really challenge him as I would today. Um, So this really hasn't been presented with such clear focus, I don't think ever. Um, So I'm out there trying to educate people, and, and I'm excited to be here to do that. But we'll see what happens. I mean, this connects a lot of dots for people. When you look through politics and the dysfunction and the gridlock and the failed bills and why can't they go forward, um, when you look at it through this lens, it just makes sense. Um, yet, again, I'm a small government guy. What I like about it is this, you know, don't get fooled that we need regulation or we need campaign finance reform or we need publicly funded can- you know, campaigns. We need them to do what's right or wrong. It's really very simple. But we need to point out what's right or wrong. Sometimes the easiest answer is the simple one. This is a very simple issue. Now, you would think that if you could really get – you, you know, we're saying well, we want Congress to regulate themselves mm-hmm. when they're, they're behaving like a bunch of freaking mobsters, gangsters, and thieves. Right. And generally, mobsters, gangsters, and thieves don't regulate themselves. But the reality is there's a very small core of party leadership that actually benefits from this. Right. And everybody else in Congress is being victimized by it. Right. So you would think if you could put enough of a light on it, it just would almost be them freeing themselves. Because I know there's a lot of congressmen that are doing things they prefer not to do, saying things they prefer not to say. And I like your insight on this, because I did something in my past that you've done in yours. I ran for office. I ran as a libertarian for a, a seat in the Texas State House. Mm-hmm. Um, the minute you start running a political campaign, you start to think and act differently. For instance, I just had a neighbor. There was being a he was being a dick. There's no other word for it. And normally he was behaving in a way that I would have went over and said, "Hey, look, you're being a dick. Knock it off." Right. You know, and not real aggressive. Just just flat out would have told him, "Yo, this is this is not how you need to be." And immediately I I was catching myself going, "Well, what if he made a big deal about it? Now you're running." And, and, and I ended up going and tell the guy he was a dick anyway. But I had the thought that I would have never even had before. Right. That starts to change. Well, I normally wouldn't do this, but since I want this, I've got to. Doesn't that just start to happen almost immediately in your mind? Just see, no matter how upstanding you are as a human being, you start to think differently, don't you? You do. You do. You know, cultural norms are extremely powerful. You know, my background actually is in politics or finance. I'm actually in human services. I have my master's degree in uh, clinical psychology, and I work for the Department of Mental Health. So I've actually been in mental health my whole career. But partly, you know, that's helped me learn how to find a straight line through dysfunction. Um, so, yeah, cultural norms are extremely powerful. It's almost like smoking. I mean, smoking is legal, but it's not culturally accepted anymore. It's very, very difficult to do it. Cultural norms are powerful. And what you're saying is exactly correct. As soon as you become a candidate, you start censoring yourself. That's normal. And it's not the end of the world, but it's how far will you go with it. And by the time you've gotten into Congress, you're so far along you don't want to stop going forward, and then leadership comes along in a very supportive way and says, geez, we really want to help you. We like you. We watched your campaign, um, but, but this is what we do. Uh, you, know, you tend to keep going forward at that point. It's very hard to get out of it. I do wonder if it's shifting already. One, I'm out there trying to make it happen, but two, you also see more and more senior members of Congress retiring. And I'm really wondering if you know things like the Internet, things like your radio show, so things like your radio show are help bringing I like to it. I think that people, you know, the writing might be on the wall for some of these senior members. The things might be changing already. And hopefully things like your show and, and me presenting it uh, will bring light to it. We'll see what happens. You know, what's happening to Justin Amash and getting thrown off these committees is really fascinating to watch. It'll be interesting to see. Now, now he's talking about running for Senate, which would, would probably be a great thing. Um, but, you know, Congress is already trying to shut him out. The leadership's already trying to shut him out because he's not playing the game. I, I think that, okay, I mean, take the, 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 the D versus the R out of this. If you're voting in a district mm-hmm. and the party leadership has turned its back on your candidate, on your side, freaking vote for them. That's probably an indicator that they're rocking the boat. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, like congressmen are like children, right? Yep. You want the kid not to take the cookie out of the cookie jar. You put it where he can't reach it, and when he crawls up and puts his hand in it, you smack the hand and say, don't do that. And then when he's a good boy, you give him a cookie. Right. And what does the, what's the cookie for the congressman? They want the donation. They want the support. They want the vote. Right, right. 
So rocking the boat should become what people are asking for. If, if the DNC or the RNC loves your candidate, they're probably not looking out for you. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. We actually had a situation in Massachusetts in uh, 2012. Uh, you know, candidate Ron Richards to say uh, he had been a state rep before and he was running for Congress. You know, they have, they have a young guns program in the Republican Party. They have like a red to blue program for the Democrats. Again, this is equal on both sides. But basically, to get in the young guns program, there's three stages. There's, you know, on the radar, there's being watched, and then you're in the young guns program. And the leadership will tell you to get into the young guns program, you have to pass a set of rigorous benchmarks. That's the, that's the buzzword they always do. <laughs> but the rigorous benchmarks are mainly fundraising benchmarks. So you actually have to show that you're willing to play game to get the party support. So they're indoctrinating a guy like Richard to say before he even gets to Congress. He's already met with them. He's already been brought to fundraisers with them. He's already shown that he can do this. Um, so he's supported by leadership. And he almost won the election. Um, but, uh, you know, people, the Republicans get all excited. The, the, you know, the constituency says, oh, geez, you know, a member of the Young Guns program, that's great. It shows he's getting the backing. Isn't that wonderful? But it's actually exactly what you said. That's a bad sign. That's a really bad sign. I would, you know, that's not an endorsement I would ever want. No, no. I'll tell you, um, here's another experience I had from running for office. It's, it's pretty interesting. It just tells you, even at the state level, how many people are out there willing to use whatever system's in place. One night we're at a, a really nice uh, restaurant having dinner, and I'm there with one of my business partners and all, and, and our attorney for our corporation was there, and I had talked to him a few times on the phone and all, but I had never actually had a sit-down meeting with him. And somehow we got on the, the subject of politics, and one of the one of the girls that worked for me was always telling me I should run for office again, and she told him, you know, he ran for office, and he said, really, tell me about it. I said, well, I ran as a libertarian in a heavy Republican district. I got like 18% of the vote, mm -hmm. uh, which was insane because a Democrat usually got like five. Wow. Right? So, I, and I, I said, I made a point. I never expected to win. That wasn't the point. It's just I wanted people to have a choice, mm -hmm. and it was it was just something I did for, for effect. Right. And he says, well... If you ever actually want to win an election and they're willing to run as a Republican, let me know and we can make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was like, I felt like, you know, we need, I'm like, he's a good attorney, but we need a new attorney. I mean, I, I yeah. it's like, I don't even want anything to do with this guy anymore. My partner's like, calm down. Yeah. It's not that bad. I'm like, no, no, it is. Exactly. Because you can almost feel him like already sticking the hooks in right yeah. there. Like, hey, yeah, I'm connected. I got money. I got other people that got money. Yeah. I know the seat you're talking about. That yeah. person's not this new, 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 new member down there. She's only been right. in office two terms. She's not that strong. Mm -hmm. You're a good speaker. We could do this. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you'll do it my way, right, right. right. That was it. Was a, a very and it was like, yeah, don't worry about it, man. I'm not interested in that. He goes, if, and what he what he landed with was, when you're interested in winning, let me know. Yeah, exactly. Like we we control the process. You don't. You know, um, it, it's so opposite of what it was meant to be. Winning on principles and ideas is almost impossible, even though that's what we need more than ever. You know, that's why you're doing your show and I'm doing such a good job with it is you knew that that is wrong. Um, you know, and you've got a backbone, stood up to it and went in a different route, which is probably more influential than had you won. And that's great. Yeah, that's great. But, yeah, that's the way the system works. And it's very, very corrupting. It starts out slow. The people aren't bad people. You're obviously not a bad guy, but the offer's out in front of you. And a lot of people take it. A lot of people take it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, hey, I appreciate the work you're doing. Your website, again, you want to tell everybody what it is? Sure. It's definingthemachine, one word, definingthemachine.com. Well, folks, I think this is an incredibly important issue. I think it shows you two things. One, quit arguing with each other about, you know, who's who's the who's the shiniest of two turds in your elections. <laughs> and start let's actually let's actually start focusing on what the problem is because I've been saying for years the system is the problem and Patrick, I help you, I, I appreciate you helping me explain exactly how big the problem is today. Oh, no, I appreciate you taking the time and getting the opportunity. I'm just trying to get the word out. So, anybody who wants to contact me, contact me through the site. All right, folks, again, the website is definingthemachine.com. And this has been Jack Spirico today along with Patrick Barron, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. All right, guys, and uh, as I said yesterday, I'm going to start when I do rewinds for you, most of the time anyway, adding in a new song of the day to give you more new content with the old episodes when we rewind them. Uh, today, if we finish CCR Week, which I promised you earlier in the week, we'd have full-on CCR Week. Uh, I realize that we've played uh, quite a few songs, uh, I think three that were, we would call them B-side uh, songs. They were really great songs. Uh, they weren't big hits because they were, you know, the backside of, of, of a 45 back in the day, right? Um, 
today I decided we did, I had done one big hit. Let's do two big hits out of the, the five songs for this week. Uh, this is one of their biggest hits that they ever had. And it's just an awesome song, and I won't say much more about it than that. Uh, but it's a great one to go out on a Friday with. And, of course, it is Around the Bend. With that, it's been Jack Spierko, even though it was a rewind with another episode of the Survival Podcast. <laughs>